It's Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. Once again this week, we are taking a look back at some of my favourite chats from the past year with two composers and a local arts luminary slash educator. One of the annual events in Colombia that I suspect goes under most people's radar is the Mizzou International Composers Festival, where eight young composers from around the world are invited to Colombia to premiere one of their compositions, played by the acclaimed Alarm Will Sound Music Ensemble. And each year I have the chance to chat with a few of the composers. My chats with Angelica Negron and Cassie Wieland are from back in July when they visited Colombia. Angelica as one of the featured guest composers and Cassie as one of the eight young resident composers. The third guest this evening is Josh Runnels, who some people know better as J.R.T.'s, host of the Mo Soul Collective and a vocalist, writer, poet and arts educator. As a side note, the next Soul Sessions Como, which Josh hosts, will be at the Orr Street Studios this Saturday, January the 28th. No booze, no sugar January is almost over, although I will need to have a wee dram tomorrow night to toast the haggis in honour of the Scottish poet Robbie Burns. But for tonight's show, it's going to be a nice cup of licorice tea. Here we go. In the beginning, there was Puerto Rican folk music, her mum's coterie of drag queen friends and formal piano and violin instruction at the Conservatory of Music in Puerto Rico. But today, as a contemporary multi-instrumentalist composer, Angelica Negron's music is boundless as it flows across swaths of musical landscapes, often dreamy and ethereal, embracing the spirit and sounds of her native Puerto Rico and featuring her own experimentation in micro sound sampling from her eclectic collection of instruments, including grandfather clock mechanisms, tap bells and toy pianos, along with items she picks up in the grocery department. She writes for orchestra, large ensembles, chamber ensembles and soloists. She composes for vocalists, ballet, film scores and operatic works specifically written to be lip synced by drag queens. She has been commissioned by a slew of organizations, including the Kronos Quartet, the Dallas Symphony Orchestra, Opera Philadelphia, and the New York Botanical Gardens. She appears on lists like 10 Young Female Composers You Should Know and the 20 Most Innovative Musicians Working Today. The New York Times referred to her as a contemporary music heavyweight, which stands in beautiful counterpoint to the sound of her airy and angelic vocals. Her music has been described as wistfully idiosyncratic and contemplative. Angelica Negron, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. I am so thrilled to get you hold of myself for a little while because in the last 24 hours, I've become a huge fan of your work. Oh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure being here talking with you. I'm glad you're enjoying the music. So much. And there is so much I want to ask you about that I don't 
even really know where to start. But I am curious whether your teenage self, keen to head out into the big musical world, would have foreseen a time that the rhythms of Puerto Rico and drag queens would circle back into your musical life. I don't think I would, in my wildest dreams, <laughs> think that that would be possible. Um, it's something that's happened very naturally, and it makes complete sense that I am here and that this is what's happening right now. But I think at that time, I was too close to it to really be able to see that it could be an important part of my life later and my career, too. Most of us spend a, a large chunk of our life working out what we don't want to do. And then if we're lucky, at some point, we find a means of communicating authentically with the world around us. And as a composer, who I would say is now in your the fully mature part of your career, tell me about when you found that point of musical authenticity away from the baggage and noise of expectations. Well, that took me a while. I, I struggled with that a lot. I think because my approach, or not my approach, my first encounters with sound actually were like most people that, that study music, it's through technique, through learning how to play an instrument, not exploring sounds like we do in paints and colors and, and different art materials. That's very common in early childhood education. But with sound, most of the time, even in, in those young encounters and in those, even in mommy and me classes, it's very much about learning a steady pulse or something that has to do with technique. So I think that really shaped the way I thought about even composing when I started composing and I discovered it pretty late. I just didn't play anything that was by a loving composer. So I didn't know that was possible, even though I was playing violin since I was young. So it took me a little while to understand what me being curious about all the other instruments and being very kind of unfocused in orchestra and just really mesmerized by the brass section or the percussion and forgetting about my own part that I was supposed to play. And But I didn't know what that meant. So it took me a little while to get there. And when I got there, it made sense. But then at the same time, I studied in a conservatory and in a, an academic environment. So then I felt like I had to kind of prove myself in a way. I was the only woman in, the, in a small department. I had just switched majors from violin. And I just felt like I needed to write a certain kind of music to be taken seriously and to be thought of as a capital C composer. And now I, it's kind of absurd for me to, <laughs> to think of that. But it's, yeah, I think it really took for me to not write for anyone else or, or like my transition between my master's and my doctorate. I took two years from that. And those two years, it was the first time I was writing music for myself and not showing it to anyone. And that's when everything kind of started to gel. And, and I started embracing a lot of the influences that were um, from other things that were very important to me musically and, and then not really caring so much about what others thought. It's funny that idea of just the word composer and how much baggage is in it. Whereas if you use the word songwriter, it feels much more open and fluid. Yeah. So for you, I mean, you are a songwriter as well as a composer. I mean, is it our expectations that we have different ideas of what these two things are? Or do they feel different to you too? I mean, when I think of songwriter, I think of someone that in very simple terms that works a lot with songs and, and with text and, and poetry and um, 
And then I used to tend to think that composer was more inclusive in terms of also including the instrumental part of it. But then at the same time, it is used a lot for being more exclusive and mm. for keeping other people that don't make quote unquote composerly music. Um, so I think it's used a lot in our, in our systems of, of a lot of inequality that's embedded in all of our lives, but and certainly in our field, I think there's, it's used a lot for gatekeeping and for these people can compose or these people can't. For me, really, if you're making choices around sound, then you're a composer. Doesn't matter if you're making those choices with a string quartet or with a laptop ensemble or with things you recorded on your phone and in an app. If you're making choices about how to organize sounds, for me, you're a composer and I'm really interested in demystifying that and, and hopefully inviting more people in to explore. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that you make those choices every day of your life and that's your livelihood. It could be that it's just something that brings you joy in a few days of your week. And that doesn't make you less of a composer in my eyes. How do you think about your own music? I mean, it's so different. There's so many different genres that you write and compose across. How do you describe your own music? I think it's very open in terms of of the vulnerability of, of sharing personal stories and also open in spaces. I like to think of pieces that go beyond the concert hall and and in which other spaces music can exist in you know, it's always music is always around us, but with intention of a piece existing somewhere that it doesn't have to be constrained to a concert hall. So I think open is is a really important word for me in a, in a way that also feels inviting, hopefully. And um, there's also a playful sensibility, even if the subject matter is something a little more heavy or um, or the piece itself feels a little more contemplative. I think there there's always a playful entry point, at least for me, compositionally. Sometimes you can hear that in the sounds in themselves. Sometimes it's a little more hidden, but I... I think I create my best work or the best that I'm most excited about when I'm playing and exploring and and following my curiosity. You are incredibly prolific as a composer. Your website has a very, very long list of compositions from orchestral works to pieces for solo performance, vocal works, full film scores. Plus, you perform and write for your own band, Balloon, who are, I love the quote, they are fluent in the language of global pop, which is completely my language. (laughs) Tell me a little bit about your composing practice and how you decide in which musical landscape the sounds in your head will end up. You wake up, there's a song on your head, do you think, oh my goodness, this is a piece for a massive orchestra, or this is for balloon, or this is for a film score? Like, how do you know where it's going to go? Yeah, well, I used to be very intentional about those distinctions before and I to the point that balloon was something that happened even before it started before I started writing music formally on paper so it was to a point that I I kept it so separate that the people that studied with me in the conservatory didn't even know about balloon it was like I would play these shows in DIY venues in San Juan and then I would go like wake up (laughs) in the morning and then go to orchestra or, or do my thing and so I was very intentional about keeping things separate. And I think that was the academic kind of mind frame. And and Mm. I mean, it's gatekeeping at its finest, internalized, you know, (laughs) even in my own work. But I think um, now I really think of things very fluidly. Balloon is something that's collaborative. 
And then there might be a moment or an opportunity that presents itself in which Balloon could have like an orchestral arrangement for a concert, or it could have a string quartet arrangement for for an album, which has happened a lot. And that's something that is could happen very much in tandem with me working with uh, in an orchestral piece or um, around the same time I'm writing music for a documentary or I'm writing a song for myself. And I find myself sometimes playing a plant with an orchestra in a piece that I wrote or inviting an orchestra or, or orchestral instruments into Balloon's world or at the same time incorporating a lot of Balloon influences in a piece that I write for an ensemble. So it's just, it's all very fluid right now and that feels right to me and I spend less time anxious than I used to before. <laughs> well, there were three projects which I would love to have you talk about quickly, even though there are another 15 that I have questions about. But <laughs> you talk about working with plants. So the first is is not really a project so much as the way that you use vegetables in your music. Talk to me about hooking vegetables up to your synthesizer and how a rambutan sounds different than a turnip. Like, what are you getting out of that? Talk about that vegetable component. Well, I, I write a lot of music that incorporates electronics. And as, as soon as I started doing that, I was presented with the problem of the performance of live electronic music. And I basically just didn't want it to be a laptop and hitting play or a keyboard. Just I wanted to to have something that would also add a visual element to the music and that would make it more engaging and inviting for the people that are looking at listening. So I started exploring with this interface that's called Ototo and basically anything that can electricity can act as a trigger for a sound. So water, vegetables, because they have water in them, are great conductors of electricity. And I just hook alligator clips to leaves or to a cauliflower or to a a container with water and then it's basically acting as an on or off trigger so the shape or the object itself it's not making any difference in terms of the sound but because I've been using that technology for for a while now it does impact a lot the compositional process and my choice of the instrument has a lot to do with if the piece has text, if um, the sounds and textures. I I feel like once I'm writing, I have a very clear idea of what the instrument will look like or needs to look like in order to match the song. So I'm kind of building the instrument or making choices around those. Um, so even though it's not particularly affecting the sound, it could if I have sensors and I've explored that a little bit. But mostly for me, it's about building the instrument that feels like a good match to a certain piece or a certain texture or song. And when you say building the instrument, you mean the selection of plants and vegetables that you have lined up. So yeah. I love how you think about the colors and you just think about how they sit together in a row. I mean, it's very aesthetic how you select the vegetables, I think. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, there is a practical element to it, especially if I'm playing vegetables. Usually I have like my biggest vegetable is my lowest note and then I have radishes or smaller things on top as my sharps are flat so I can visually orient myself. So that's more of a practical thing. But then when I'm playing a plant, it's not a layout like a keyboard so then I there's other considerations but but yeah I think the visual component of of live performance it's it's really important and it's not only how you present yourself and, and what you wear and how you talk or your demeanor but also what are you playing and the gestures that are conveying those sounds particularly when those sounds are coming from a computer ultimately or electronic and there's this kind of disembodiment that happens innately because of the nature of the instrument. Mm. 
Well, if people want to see your vegetable instrument in action, they should check out the music page of your website, angelicanegron.com, and watch the great sound sessions, which are awesome. The next project I want to ask you about, which is so full of contemplative elegy that it moved me to tears. And it's one of those works that I don't think will ever leave my head. It's a short opera you wrote called The Island We Made, filmed by director Matthew Plachek, in which a drag queen, Sasha Velour, who won season nine of RuPaul's Drag Race, she lip syncs to the recorded soprano vocals of Eliza Bag. And it's so melancholic and so beautiful. It made my heart ache. Oh, Tell us a little bit about that work and, and how it came about. The Island We Made was commissioned from Opera Philadelphia. It was one of those pandemic projects. They commissioned four pieces that were meant to be seen on the virtual stage. So not filming staged operas, but really thinking of the of film as the main medium for it. And I've been writing songs for drag queens for the past four years. It's part of a, a larger opera idea that I've been working on. And it's a very personal project inspired a lot by my childhood and, and being surrounded by drag queens when I was growing up in Puerto Rico and and also um, intersections of identity and, and illusion and, and just exploring deeper the complexities of that. And And when Opera Philadelphia approached me, I thought, it would be a good opportunity to explore that in a piece that is connected to the themes that I've been working on, but it's also its own thing. It's kind of self-contained, this 10-minute opera, and I and I wanted to make something that was small in scale in terms of opera length, but at the same time, I wanted it to feel like gigantic and enormous um, in the way it fills you. And, and I was very grateful and, and lucky to find two incredible collaborators, um, Matthew Plasek, who's a brilliant filmmaker uh, that really took what I wrote and, and made something incredibly moving and beautiful out of it. And then Sasha Velour, um, who I've been a huge fan of for, for many years and I'm really grateful she said yes to being a part of this. So we just talked about our relationships with our mothers, went really deeply, very quickly. And out of that, I wrote a song and Matthew, a treatment, and we filmed in Staten Island, and it's a very special project that's really dear to my heart. And I'm and I'm really glad when I hear that it's also moving to other people like you. So it's not available for viewing right now. It was available last year for a limited time through Opera Philadelphia. That's correct. Yeah. But what are your plans? How, when, or how might people be able to see it? Well, I'm um, right now in conversations with Matthew and Sasha and, and see how, what we can do to make this more available. So stay tuned. Hopefully we'll, we'll have this more accessible in the next few months, hopefully. I hope so too. Finally, I just want to ask you about a film score you wrote for a documentary called Landfall, directed by Cecilia Aldarondo and released in 2020, which explores everyday life in post-Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico. And this must have been a project that was incredibly emotional for you to, to revisit that time. And I I wonder how much your music that you wrote for the film score is in response to the filmscape that Cecilia created versus your own memories of that time. Yeah, um, well, it's all kind of intertwined. I think there's it's it's hard to separate the two, but I I will say that Cecilia she has a beautiful, very poetic way of sharing stories, and I was very much inspired by that. And as we started 
working on it together, I knew that I wanted to record in Puerto Rico, that I wanted to record with Puerto Rican musicians, and that I did not want to write the typical film score in which I would just sit down, watch the movie, and then write music. Most of the score was done in a way of me asking the musicians, what does rain sound like in your instrument? And what does rain sound like when it's falling on top of bottles of water? So kind of scaffolding the process in a way that just touched on the things that are important to the documentary and finding different ways to tell that story that connected also to my experience. Because I, I live in in years that I'm, I've been out of the island. So even though all my family and close friends are still in the island and experienced it, I experienced the hurricane through their eyes and I was not physically present there. So there's also a distance that I'm really aware of as well. So just kind of being hyper aware of that and sensitive to that. And what does that do to the way, the way we tell stories as well? And Helica, I don't want you to go without giving a quick mention again to your band Balloon. Your album came out in 2018. It was named as one of Rolling Stone magazine's top 10 Latin albums of the year. How would you describe the music of Balloon? Balloon um, is a tropical, electronic, really fun project that has been together for a long time. It was started by me and my husband, and, and it's now a collective of friends, mostly Puerto Ricans, non-Puerto Ricans that have joined the family and are now honorary Puerto Ricans. It's very influenced by folk music from Puerto Rico, by electronic music that we love, and also by reggaeton and dembow rhythms. Yeah, so it's, it just feels like a a family and and like home. <laughs> and let's go out with a clip from a track from Balloon's album. This is La Nueva Ciudad. Thank you. 
I love it. You can also find a ton of Angelica's music and links on her website at angelicanegron.com and her band Balloon's 2018 album Prisma Tropical is on Spotify, or at least some tracks are. Angelica, thank you so much for making time to chat today. My pleasure. Thank you for the time. 30 years ago, I definitively left home, as in I left my country. I ended a long relationship, handed over the very last key on my keychain, left almost all my possessions except what would fit in a backpack at my parents' house and got on a plane to Hong Kong, where I knew no one and had no job. I think of it as the point at which I became the adult me. I left the world I knew to find another, and having jumped off that cliff once and found I could fly, I knew I could always do it again, which is why a work by my next guest, composer Cassie Wheeland, really spoke to me because it is called I Left One World to Find Another and I Can Do It Again, which was inspired by the complexity of nostalgia and Cassie's relationship with her own hometown of Normal, Illinois. Cassie composes instrumental, vocal and electroacoustic music and seeks to explore through her work human connection, interaction and expression. Her work has been described as having loads of sonic personality and that her visceral compositions send chills up your spine. And Cassie Wheeland is my next guest this evening, joining me from her home in Brooklyn. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Cassie. Hi, Diana. Thank you for having me. When I listened to I Left the World, I Knew to Find Another and I Can Do It Again, my mind's eye takes me back to the plane ride to Hong Kong, looking down through clouds at undecipherable landscapes and trying to reconcile the feelings I had of elation and panic that were sweeping through me. Tell me about what this work means to you. Well, that's funny you mentioned that because as I was writing this work, I was imagining my plane ride from Illinois to New York, where I live now. And it's something I'd never done before, moving away from home. And it was all very exciting and terrifying. And, you know, you get a lot of complex feelings from missing a place that you know doesn't suit you anymore, or at least Mm -hmm. for the time being. Right. So you grew up in the middle of Illinois, surrounded in every which direction by farmland (laughs) and fields, and now you live in a major East Coast metropolis. How do you think the geography of this new home has influenced your compositions in recent years? As you mentioned, growing up, I was always surrounded by open sky and flat land. And I think after moving to New York, I didn't realize how much it would visually affect me seeing obstacles in my direction because I'm so used to seeing a, an open horizon and seeing all these all these buildings and obstructions in my way I felt I felt almost trapped 
uh, at first, at least. But I started to appreciate and get more comfortable with complexity, either seeing complexity or hearing complexity with crazy cityscape of horns honking and, and people talking. And I think that appreciation has really both inspired my work and also made me want to write maybe something more simple, basically. Um, I want to hear something clean and consistent for, for half an hour, an hour even. So do you think your work has got sonically more spacious as you've been in a more built-up environment almost? I think so. I think uh, especially harmonically, it's it's gotten a lot more spacious. I like to focus on one chord at a time and really move slowly harmonically. But texturally, I've started incorporating, I'd say, like crunchier textures. Hmm. Take me back to young Cassie at school. What were you listening to musically? And what was your idea of a composer at that time? Oh, my gosh. I don't even think that I thought of composers until I was at least 17, 18. I was really shy as a kid, very quiet. And I loved, uh, I listened to a lot of pop stars on the radio. <laughs> I listened to a lot of Britney Spears and any 2000s pop CD I could get my hands on. But um, when I got to college is when I started learning about composers. And I actually didn't start writing until the age of 20, because I didn't think that girls that women could be composers. It just mm. never crossed my mind. And when did you decide the field of new music was where you wanted to be with your music? It's sort of just where I landed, where I ended up. The mentor that I had in college who taught me how to write, Dr. Magnuson, he was the one who introduced me to all this music. And I got to listen to women composers like me, like Julia Wolf and like Meredith Monk, who's also going to be at Mizzou. And I was so inspired by these women that I just, I looked at them and I thought, I want to do that. It's interesting that the, when you think about the world of songwriting, it's largely open to anyone. But once you attach the label composer to the process of writing music, then like you say, a lot of young women don't think that that's something that's for them. And suddenly mm -hmm. there's a lot of extra baggage and gatekeepers and expectations and the world narrows quite considerably mm -hmm. to being mostly white men and academic spaces. So talk to me about in this day and age now being a female composer and what being a composer rather than a songwriter means to you? To me, a similar comparison is, is like a cook versus a chef. We think of chefs like working professionally in the, in the workforce as, as men. And we often think of composers as, as men just because it, it sounds more elevated. It sounds more intellectual, but to me, songwriters and composers are the same people. You know, we're all just trying to create something for other people. And I, I used to not like calling myself a composer. I thought that it sounded too egotistical or too pretentious, but I've, I've learned to embrace it because I think once we, we normalize those phrases that 
seem gatekeepy, um, mm. then they become more real, more realistic. A few years ago, you produced a body of works called Anatomy, which comprised a series of solo works for various instruments, each work based on a different part of the body. So you have works called eyelid, lung, hands, mouth, heart, in which you seek to explore how the characteristic of a body part can innately hold a subtle story. So I'm going to play just a tiny clip from eyelid. And then I would love to have you tell us a little bit about this series and what you mean by a body part holding its own subtle story. So this series started with one piece, with uh, the piece Hands for clarinet. And I started writing it because I had a friend who asked me to write a solo for them, and I did. And after that, I just wanted to write more pieces for more friends. And <laughs> that original piece was inspired by how detailed people can be, um, even visually. And when you look at somebody's hands, you can see how their nails are kept, and possibly what kind of work they do, the gestures that they make when they talk, and those tiny little intricacies can can say a lot about a person. And I, I wanted to keep going with that idea and potentially create a whole, excuse the pun, but a whole body <laughs> of work <laughs> that uh, represented that idea. So tell us about eyelids specifically. Why eyelid? So while I was writing this work, I was thinking of, you know, an eyelid fluttering back and forth. And I, I originally was thinking of calling it I, but I love the idea of being so specific about something that you don't usually think of. Um, with your eyelid, it moves, it moves subconsciously. It, uh, you don't really think about blinking unless you start thinking about it and then you think about it. <laughs> But the idea of subconscious movement was the driving force for the form of the piece. Well, let's move on to your work called Consolation Prize. Tell us about this work. So I, I was feeling a little moody when I wrote this work. I was thinking about ambitions and goals and how it is terrifying sometimes to go for what you want, either within your career or within your relationship. And it seems like each time you heal or progress in, in a certain way, it just gets harder. And the lyrics in the piece are, if we fall, is it worth it? And I'll actually be singing with alarm bell sound in the piece. I have a little vocal electronic setup. So during the piece, you'll hear the words, if we fall, was it worth it? 
Well, I want to end with a clip from the piece of music we talked about earlier called Hometown. The work is in two parts. Part one is titled If I Change, Will I Still Be Okay? And part two is I Left One World to Find Another and I Can Do It Again. Any additional thoughts you would like to share about this work, Cassie? This work was originally a little bit of a branch out for me because it incorporated electronics and incorporated my own voice. And this is a work that I'm, I'm super proud of because it, it sort of launched this whole second branch of my career for me, which is incorporating my own voice into works, which is something I was very afraid to do for a long time. So I'm very thankful for that and I hope people enjoy it. Here it is then. I left one world to find another and I can do it again by Cassie Wheeland, which you can hear in full on the Watch Listen page of Cassie's website, CassieWheeland.com. My guest has been composer Cassie Wheeland. You can find Cassie's music on her website at CassieWheeland.com as well as on SoundCloud, Spotify and Bandcamp. Cassie, it is lovely to have you home in the Midwest for a weekend. <laughs> Thanks for making time to chat. Thank you so much for having me. My third and final guest this evening is Josh Runnels, a.k.a. J.R.T.'s, who I chatted with back in August, just before his performance at the annual True False Boondoddle event. Josh has been performing on Columbia stages for several years now, first alongside Simone Sparks and the band Loose Loose, and more recently with the Mo Soul Collective at the Blue Notes Monthly Soul Sessions Concerts. 
But as a true man of the arts, music is but one area in which Josh excels. He is an educator who uses art to help young people find their self-identity, a spoken word poet who, together with poet Takia Thomas, established the Columbia chapter of the Slam Poetry Organization, Louder Than a Bomb. He coordinates the Education Outreach Program for True False, and he's a stage performer who totally stole my heart as the lion in the Mizzou production of The Wiz back in 2019. But overarching all of these is the fact that he is an arts luminary who describes his brand as art education and education about art and culture. Back in 2020, he collaborated with Chicago singer-songwriter Shah Brielle and appeared in the beautiful video for her song, Come Home. And last year, he released his own single entitled Blinded. But for the next 15 minutes, I get him all to myself. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Josh. Thank you. That was a great intro. Uh, I appreciate it. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> well, can I just say that I want to be you when I grow up as you're involved with and influencing so many artistic happenings and manifesting beautiful connective energy to bring people and ideas and art together. Are there times when you are still? What does stillness look like for you? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, stillness is needed much more nowadays. Uh, it's a it's a good problem to have. Um, I am pretty busy and, like I like to say, productive, um, trying to pursue the things that I love and community organized, but also um, pursue all of the arts that I can. But yes, uh, <laughs> meditation is still solitude and just moments of silence and uh, moments of jazz. Jazz is like the best noise next to silence. <laughs> two key words for you are passion and purpose. And I feel like those are two ideals that for many people were just ravaged by COVID and the past two years. And I wonder how you channeled your passion and purpose during that time. Well, what I would say is um, it's kind of becoming more cliche, but the metaphor or the parallel of a uh, butterfly in a cocoon is buried in darkness. And I feel like everyone experienced what that felt like during the pandemic. But it depended on what we were doing in that darkness and what we were preparing for when the light came. And so uh, the pandemic is still upon us. However, we're in uh, better times. I, sh I can say it feels more comfortable to be outside, outdoors, indoors at uh, live music concerts, uh, live art events, etc. And um, yeah, that two year time period of uh, 2020 into 2022 um, has been very challenging, but very rewarding. And um, I'm blessed to be in a position to be able to pursue my purpose passionately. And those two words came together um, I think back in 2015 when I was working in Chicago public school systems and I wrote up my, one of my first pieces that was pretty much an extended spoken word poetry piece on uh, alliteration of peas, the powerful peas. Uh, and so that passion purpose is the, is the two words that started off that poem. That poem has been one of my favorite poems. I haven't recited it in a while, but um, it's one of my favorite poems to recite. And then in 2020, I started my own company. And uh, I named it Art Is. Art Is Passion Purpose. Spelled similar to how my name is. J.R. Is Passion Purpose. And yeah, those two words have been something that I've used as my motto, but also understanding that art is my tool. And those go hand in hand together to help others understand what their purpose is and how to maneuver passionately about their purpose. I want to find out why people are here, because when people know who they are and know their self-awareness, their self-identity, 
they know what their purpose is. It's easier for other people to interact and to work with them and to build and become one in harmony here. And so that's what I like to say that I'm about is building that type of community. How did you find your purpose? I would say art, um, art, metaphysics and religion. <laughs> I grew up in church um, and, you know, stereotypical Baptist church. My dad is a minister still to this day. My granddad is still a minister to this day. And, you know, for a second, I thought maybe I'm supposed to be a minister. Maybe that's my purpose. But the key for me is ministry through music or ministry through forms of art. And I may not be in the pulpit, but I feel like a soul sessions uh, is something that is like a church or the different types of events that we throw is more like community gathering for a reason to get fed and to take that uh, that food for thought and then go and keep going. And the gift just keeps on giving. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I definitely would say I found yeah, my purpose kind of more around my age of 21, 22. You write on your website about helping youth and young adults find higher consciousness through Afrofuturistic inspirations. And I wonder what that looks like in terms of your own artistic output. Oh, that's a great question. Uh, well, let me talk a little bit about Afrofuturism, just for mm. anyone that may not be privy to it. And I'm not I'm no expert at it. Um, I'm still fairly new to the uh, the genre. And um, thank you to a dear friend, uh, Takia Thomas and uh, a great community out here who are people that kind of have given me the tools and resources to educate myself more about, I guess, what I can do with my passion and purpose. But I, okay, let me start with Loose Loose, actually. Um, Loose Loose, we coined our sound or our genre as Future Soul. I kind of felt like we were the originators of that. But of course, like the universe is all connected. So there's probably millions of others who probably coined that sound or that genre as well. But it wasn't something that had reached the surface of the popular eye as far as genres. And so Loose Loose would go into talking about genre equality. Jake Summerscales, our drummer, he was a DJ here in town, an amazing guy. He was the one that came up with the idea of uh, having T-shirts that say genre equality. And, you know, it was funny because we were definitely hitting a number of different genres. And then uh, we landed in Future Soul that made the most sense. And so that carried over into me kind of exploring Afrofuturism. And I'll just name a few different figures who would be like the face or the pioneers of Afrofuturism. And of course, the one that's most dear to me is Sun Ra, famous jazz musician. Sun Ra, the type of style in which he uh, fashioned himself and his band and the orchestra that continues to this day is something that is futuristic. It essentially is just identifying what it looks like to be a black or brown person of the Afro hemisphere and to imagine and visualize what we will look like artistically, creatively in the future. And so we are familiar with sci-fi, different 80s movies, um, TV shows, and a lot of times uh, black and brown people were not included in the future mm-hmm. of science fiction. And so black people who were pioneers of being imaginative enough to create, like, I guess, some type of media, medium through art, uh, music, poetry, um, and what that would look like for us to be in the future. I want to also be someone that contributes to that and get students to think about us in the future and what that looks like for us. And so how does that look in your work? What I am expanding on in Future Soul, as far as like the type of sound of music is, I like to say it like this, it's pretty much music creation in reflection of our past. So when we think about soul music and the reflection of what soul music has been, where it came from, but we're also trajecting toward the future, but whilst in our present cultural state. And so what that looks like now, Octavia Butler will often say our responsibility is to reflect the times. And so if we're doing that, uh, we have to do it with the reflection of the past. 
thinking about the future, but reflecting right now where we are in our current cultural state. And so essentially it's just on a more literal stance, it's essentially just like taking all of the different sounds that taught me how to be a musician and then uh, trying to encapsulate that in the sound that we're creating on stage at soul sessions or in the music that we're recording. I do love the works of Octavia Butler. She's an amazing writer. I have to say I was absolutely devastated when Loose Loose split up. I loved listening to you. The beauty of the music, your voice combined with Simone Sparks. I would say that pretty much every time I heard you at some point, it brought me to tears. It was just so beautiful. So talk to me a little bit about that split. It happened during the pandemic and how it left you feeling emotionally and artistically. Yes. uh, I've only talked about this one time publicly, uh, but this is great that I'm being asked again a little bit time later. But yeah, I was devastated as well. I felt like um, if you had been in a a good relationship with a good partner for years (laughs) and then, you know, you got your heart broken, I would say it's similar to that. It felt like that. It was simply, I guess, a time factor. It was kind of almost inevitable because of how talented each individual in Loose Loose was, is, Mm -hmm. and still is. And we were kind of in an interesting place of like, we all were starting to seek different directions of what we saw Loose Loose to become. And we weren't on the same page. And so I was one, I will say I was one that was like, all right, y'all, like, I think we should try one more time. Like, I'm, I'm that guy in a relationship. Like, I don't think we should break up just yet because I don't, <laughs> don't want to feel that regret that I felt in the past by leaving something too soon. <laughs> uh, but one thing I did tell the group and I did tell myself is that no matter what, I'm be here in Columbia and I'm going to continue like what we started. And that's exactly what I've done with Soul Sessions uh, with the help of many dear friends. Well, Last year, you brought out a single entitled Blinded, which I would love to play. But before we play it, tell us a little bit about it. Ooh, yeah, Blinded. Blinded is like a poetic rap and like a really monotone <laughs> voice in which I am. I'll just talk about the video, the video visually. For those who have not seen the video, you can find it on YouTube. But just type in Blinded, J dot A-R-T-I-Z. The video visually expresses me and like my Afrofuturistic self. So essentially, I'm in the I'm in the future with the way that I'm presenting myself. But of course, it's uh, almost surreal. And I am in a blue space. I'm very blue. Uh, I remember as a kid at that song, I'm blue, da boo dee, da boo dao. I never knew what that song meant. And then I grew up and I was like, oh, he was sad. <laughs> it was simple. And so I'm in a blue space. And... um that is the whole first verse I'm speaking about, like my experiences of trying to be a, what I would call a silent king. And what that pretty much means is just someone who is destined for being a leader in leadership, but is pretty much silent and is shying away from it. And um, I'm pretty much blinded to the reveal of the light that I needed to see at the end of the tunnel to know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing in life. I'm blinded and I'm blinded by what the finer things and I'm, I'm pretty much insinuating the finer things are the things that we experience on earth that we think are the best fruits, but may not be on a material level and a spiritual level. There is something more in store. And so now we move through the video and now I'm in a melancholic gray background space. 
And so I'm coming out of blue going into gray. Uh, so it's a little bit more of a different color. And then it's a reveal of me now in, in hell. <laughs> I'm in red. And I'm like going through the fire. But that fire is, has, of course, has a light at the end of the tunnel. And I look at Blinded as me being able to shine brightly at the light that shines on, on the last scenes of Blinded. And so that's my best way of explaining Blinded by using the visuals. And those visuals were created amazingly by Anthony Jensen in Jefferson City. And we did a lot of great work together. So I appreciate working with him well let's take a listen we can't play the video because we're on radio people can seek it out but here is the track blinded blinded by the finer things the fire things behind the scenes i try to be a silent king but i am me a lion beast if i am you and i am we we rise and reach a riot peak when i am weak and you are strong you are in me rely on we iron sharp as i see I am silent seeking, he shall find the key. Open doors, the blind can see, and I'm fine with free, but if it was up to me, I luckily do not believe in luckily. Fit up to be blind about the finer things. Trying to see who ride with me, who I can see, who's whoever ride with me, fly with me, I can see, and I am seen. Riding all the time, my team is fly as we decide to be, and I can see you, I and me. Blinded by the, by the finer things, blinded by the, by the finer things. It's crazy what the eye can see, it's crazy. Heroes die to be legendary, somebody lied to me, so I'm widening the higher things, the fighter things, and minor things. Go find the things we try to read, we ride the wave, and we ride the sweet, and we night and day to we Blinded by the finer things, blinded by the finer things, blinded by the, blinded by the, we blame it on the weak, blinded by the, we blinded by the, by the finer things, blinded by the, by the finer things, blinded by the, blinded by the, we blame it on the see you as an artist of huge talent and like many of the gifted hard-working and ambitious artists I meet here in Colombia I always think why are you here when you could be lighting up much bigger stages with your talent what keeps you here I moved here because I knew that I needed something different I didn't know what I didn't know if Colombia had it I just had never left Chicago and it was time to do something new 
And so when I left Chicago and moved here, uh, I ended up working for the university's theater department. And that's probably how you saw me. <laughs> Those who were able to see me at The Wiz, that was amazing. Uh, uh, thank you for acknowledging that earlier. That was a good time. So uh, I was here doing some community, uh, youth community development work. And meeting Loose Loose was like the most important thing because it let me know, okay, I did not like forget what I'm trying to truly do, which is to be an artist, full-fledged artist. And so Loose Loose got that back on my radar and I started to see a clear path of how I actually can navigate in the, as an artist in the industry. But I need a home base or I need a base for pretty much how people support me. And I want to, I need help. Uh, everyone needs help. Everyone needs a support system. I have family in Chicago, but as far as an artist, I had no support as an artist in Chicago or a little to none. I don't want to discredit anyone who has been supporting me since day one, but it felt like, it felt like I didn't have much support. I got here and it's almost like Columbia is like, we love everything you have to offer. And yes. <laughs> and I'm like, oh yes, this is where I'm supposed to be. Uh, but, uh, so I, I first see me staying here uh, back and forth. And so I would love to have at least some type of foundation here, like where I maybe can, you know, buy a house, but also own a house somewhere else. And I can always have a reason to come back to Columbia because I own a home here and that would be great. But yes, that's why I'm here. Columbia is very tight knit. The art scene here is amazing. People support and love each other. And I've never felt anything like this uh, anywhere else. Well, I am so glad to hear it. And I hope we get to keep you for a long time. <laughs> My guest has been Josh Runnels, known musically as JRTs. Josh, thanks for the passion and purpose you bring to the arts in Columbia and for being my guest today. I am honored. Thank you so much. <laughs> and that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear on Spotify. Just search for Speaking of the Arts. And of course, you can always connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. To my guest this evening, composers Angelica Negron and Cassie Wieland, who both joined me from their homes in Brooklyn, and arts educator, vocalist, poet, and writer Josh Runnels, aka JRTs, from here in Columbia. And a reminder that the next Soul Session Como will be this Saturday at Or Street Studios. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show each week. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts, and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri. Missouri.